I don't know if the same is true for you, but it seems like everywhere I turn, if I, my eyes uh, are reading a newspaper article or perusing a headline about, or if I'm watching a television show or if I'm watching a story put out by one of the zillion news outlets, if I put on a movie, if I tune into a sporting event, or if I head out to the store to buy something, I feel like, and maybe this is true for you as well, but I feel like I am being relentlessly and repeatedly inundated either directly or indirectly with messaging about marriage, the nature of marriage, and human sexuality. It's almost inescapable everywhere you go right now. These particular issues have become, in and for our culture, the flashpoint issues, the battleground upon which every cultural offense seems to arise. And make no mistake, as it's always been throughout each and every generation, we, as the sheep of Jesus Christ, find ourselves, as he told us in Matthew 10, verse 16, living in the midst of wolves. We find ourselves living amongst those who, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1.18, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And I watch with great sadness as even those who profess Christ, the very same Christ who clearly told any and all who would follow him as a disciple in John 14.21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Meaning that those who claim to be disciples, but who, rather than turning to and hearing and accepting and believing and declaring the word of Jesus... Instead, hear, accept, believe, and declare the words and the ideologies of a wicked, corrupt society. There are many who claim to be Christians who, instead of speaking the words of Jesus into the culture in which we live, instead parrot the words of a world that is focused on suppressing the knowledge of the truth of God. And instead of living as one who has denied themselves, taking, taking up their cross and following Christ, instead of being those who speak, who declare, who publicize the word of Jesus, regardless of the consequences of declaring that word, instead become indistinguishable from the culture. Sadly, I've also watched as far too many buildings and far too many groups that insist upon calling themselves churches cast the word of Jesus aside in favor of worldly wisdom, preferring to listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, the spiritual forces of evil who are devoted to your being conned. whose end goal is, according to Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10, to steal from you, to kill you, to destroy you. Whereas Jesus came that we might have life, and life abundantly. And the manifold and numerous strategies and devices of these cosmic powers, they are indeed ensnaring and capturing and blinding the eyes 
the world's eyes to the truth. And for us who are striving to hold fast to Christ in, a, in the midst of a world obsessed, as it has always been, with self-idolatry, because, listen, make no mistake, this is the key point. This is not a new thing. We're not in any sort of new situation. It's the same human tendency repeated once again, this time in the form of promoting a radical individual autonomy and freedom to do whatever with whoever, whenever they wish, without any external authority setting or prescribing any limits to that autonomy, while, while ironically, infringing on the autonomy of everyone around them by demanding they see things their own way. Know this, in our day we've got phrases like, I'm going to be true to myself. I've got to live my authentic self. These are the words that are focused upon in our world. Individual autonomy without limitations. Even though Jesus said, if you come to him as a disciple, you must deny yourself. And for you and I, it's a tremendous temptation. Autonomy, self-autonomy and self-governance is a tremendous temptation for each and every one of us. It's always been since the beginning, since the garden itself. As it was at the time of the Tower of Babel when they wanted to go up onto the tower and eliminate God from the equation. As Israel wandered through the wilderness and lived in the land, all over and over and over again, we see repeated the desire for self Autonomy, to focus on ourselves, to focus on our desires, to focus on our own passions. And it's a temptation that exists for each and every one of us here right now also. And so we must, in order to keep ourselves from being taken in by the schemes of the devil and the passions of our own flesh, we must, as the Apostle Paul says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You and I need the belt of truth. You and I need the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And I, for one, thank God that he has provided all of these resources for us that we might hold fast. We need to wear these at every single moment. And this morning, we lay hold of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and see that in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, whose Word is the only Word that matters, whose Word is the only Word that ought to carry any weight in any, single, any one of our lives, here, in speaking to the issues of His own day, He speaks to the issues of our day. Jesus, in this text, will speak to the nature of marriage. He'll speak to divorce. He'll speak to remarriage. He'll speak to biological sex and indirectly to the sinfulness of homosexual relationships. All issues which we as God's people, we as God's ambassadors in and to this world must be clear on. And as we work our way through the text, we're going to touch on every single one of them this morning. So we turn to Scripture for clarity and we begin in Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. When Jesus finished these sayings, the sayings here refers to the discourse that he has just concluded in Matthew 18, where he explained to his disciples what it means to be one who is great in the kingdom of heaven. When he had finished this discourse, 
The text tells us, Jesus went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and there and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Once again, we see Jesus, our ever-compassionate, ever-merciful Lord and Savior. Once again, he is found caring for the sizable crowds that are following him around. And as he repeatedly did, he healed the people of their infirmities. And as he was caring for the crowds, as he was showing compassion to the crowds, here come the Pharisees. In verse 3, we read that the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The question posed by the Pharisees is actually quite targeted. And it honed in on a heated rabbinic debate raging in that day. And the Pharisees here, in bringing this question to Jesus, actually reveal their malice towards him. Because should Jesus actually answer this question, two things might happen. First, it is possible that Jesus might be imprisoned and or killed. And two, it's possible that in Jesus answering the question and taking a position, he might lose the respect of half the people in the crowd. But each one of us ought to be thankful to the Lord that the Pharisees did come to Jesus with this question because while they might have intended harm, the answer Jesus gave to the question, the answer that is recorded for us in Scripture, touches upon and settles for us in the here and now a number of debates that we find ourselves embroiled in as Christians seeking to honor and obey the Lord Jesus in our world today. Jesus here both clarified and asserted certain realities that our culture hopes to confuse and muddy. Jesus here speaks to the fact that God created humanity as male and female. Jesus speaks to the fact that marriage is a one-man, one-woman bond. They bind, they're bound together in a lifelong, monogamous, exclusive, one-flesh attachment, a bond that is joined together by God himself, and what he joins together, man must not separate. And Jesus will also speak to the nature of divorce and remarriage as well. So you can see, there's quite a few sticks of cultural dynamite in this text. But if you love Jesus, if you would obey his commission to us to go into all the world, teaching, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything he has commanded, the first thing we must do is know what he has commanded. If we are committed to appealing to the world to be reconciled to Christ by grace through faith in him, we must know the word of Jesus so that we can make that appeal. And if it's this important, which I believe it is, then we must not, we cannot yield to or capitulate to the world in any way. We cannot yield to our own flesh in these most serious and pressing issues. To do so means that we no longer function as lights in and to the world. It means we no longer faithfully represent to the world its one and only hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. And know this. The world hates the truth. Scripture repeatedly declares the world hates the truth. The world loves the darkness. And so the world will respond. It will do and say just about anything to keep you quiet. You will be told you're just not loving. You will be called a bigot. You will be told you're on the wrong side of history. You will be told you're hurting people. You will be told, we don't like your tone. 
You'll be told a whole bunch of things. The list goes on and on and on as the world tries to get us to buy into these lies, be quiet, and leave it alone. But we're not here to leave the world alone. We're here to bring the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into the world, a gospel that will cause division, that will cause irritation, that will bring offense. And it has never been more important for us as the church that we advance into the darkness that is the world with the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we go into the world with the good news of forgiveness of sin available to all, the new birth and eternal life available to all who turn from that sin and turn to Jesus in faith, to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We are here to call upon all to turn to Jesus to believe in Him, to be forgiven of their sin, and then to follow Him in obedience to His Word. And why is this so important for us? Well, I don't know if you know, but about 17 years ago, in 2005, our very own Canadian government passed what we know as Bill C-38. They took it upon themselves to redefine, and I use quotes around that word, okay? To redefine the institution of marriage. They desired, the desire was to change it from what we have always known it to be from the day that God established it in the garden when Jesus said in Matthew 19, 4 and 5, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. See, the government believed itself and believes itself capable and permitted to contradicting God's word and redefining his will for marriage. And so, out of that pride, they changed it. Two, as we see it worded in Bill C-38, and I quote, the lawful union of two persons to the exclusion of all others. And even this definition now is under fire, as it too is now increasingly problematic for a culture, for a society, for a people, for a nation so radically inflamed and devoted to their quickly and steadily growing diet for more and more sexual perversion. For a people upon whom the wrath of God is being revealed as they, in the words of the Apostle Paul again, by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, any sort of definition, any sort of boundary, any sort of parameter to sexual expression and marriage is, for this culture, an unacceptable proposition. And rather than celebrating this, this should bring us to grieve, because it is a very definite sign that God has, again, in the words of the Apostle Paul, given us up, given this society up. As we read in Romans 1, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth, and God has given them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. In 2005, Canada became just the fourth country in the world at the time to redefine marriage. To, so vi to, to violate and so blatantly rebel against the Lord's word. 
But now we are in 2022, and the floodgates are open. And just last week, our neighbors to the south also took it upon themselves to redefine the marriage relationship, codifying and enshrining into the law, into their law, the supposed right to homosexual unions being recognized, classified, and labeled as marriage. And as the world continues its descent into ever-increasing wickedness, corruption, depravity, and rebellion against the Lord, the words of our Savior, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 19 should become for us a most wonderful foundation upon which we learn truth. A most wonderful foundation for our confidence. A most excellent refuge of truth in a world that is filled with lies and attempts to suppress God's word. Because Jesus clearly defines for the Pharisees who came to him to test him on this day and for all generations from that day to this, for each one of us sitting in the seats here this morning, Jesus clearly defines God's intention, God's will, God's plan, God's word, God's definition, which again is the only definition that matters because marriage is his idea. Marriage is his creation. Marriage is his institution. Marriage is his gift to us. So while the world lines up to suppress the truth, God's people must remain firm here. We must hold fast to and speak God's word on this subject with an unwavering conviction, full of truth and full of grace. See, our Lord spoke Quite often, and the apostles spoke quite often about marriage and the nature of marriage. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, this is the second time Jesus addresses it. And that's important for us to recognize. The first time Jesus addressed it is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. You remember it in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So in contrast to the mood and the practice of the day, these words of Jesus thundered. This was a pronouncement that must have seemed quite strict to the people of this day. When he said this to them in Matthew 5, he was in the region of Galilee. And now, if you look at Matthew 19.1, he's entered into the region of Judea. This is an important detail. Why is it important now? Because as Christ enters into Judea, this here marks a new phase in his earthly ministry. Now he is on the way to Passion Week. But also, as he enters into Judea, he is passing into the, the territory that is watched over by Herod the Tetrarch. Now, what do we know about Herod the Tetrarch so far in Matthew's Gospel? This is the very same Herod who imprisoned and executed John the Baptist for having a strong opinion on what subject? Marriage. The sanctity of marriage. The impropriety, the sin of Herod's illicit relationship with Herodias, who was Herod's own brother Philip's wife. And so you see, as Jesus enters into Judea, these Pharisees come immediately to him, and the first question they ask him is what? A question about divorce. They already know Jesus' thoughts on the subject because they heard him speak these things way back in Galilee. And they hope that if they can get Jesus to speak on this subject, that maybe, maybe Herod would lead, have, 
bring about some, there will be some reprisal against him as there, were for John the, as there was for John the Baptist. But not only that, chapter 19, verse 3 says that this is a test. You see that? It's a test. And the question is, is it lawful, or the test is, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For any cause here means, can I just simply divorce my wife for any reason whenever I so choose? That's what the Pharisees were asking. And so the Pharisees here are inviting Jesus to engage in, in and with a long-standing debate within Judaism, a subject that has been argued over and disputed by some of Israel's most influential and authoritative rabbis, two men named Shammai and Hillel, both of whom came to differing conclusions as to the meaning of Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Take a look at it. There we read this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes out and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So the debate here turned on this phrase, some indecency in her. I think that's in verse 1 there. If he has found some indecency in her. So Rabbi Shammai promoted a stricter and less popular interpretation of the phrase, teaching that a man could only divorce his wife on the grounds of some sort of sexual immorality or sexual immodesty. Whereas Rabbi Hillel, on the other hand, promoted a more liberal and a more popular interpretation of the phrase, saying or teaching that a man could divorce his wife for any reason. Anything the man didn't like about the woman constituted some indecency in her. If he didn't like her cooking, if he didn't like the volume of her voice, if he didn't like the way she wore her hair, these and any other act that might irritate or annoy her husband, or if he simply lost interest in her, he could put a certificate of divorce in her hand and send her away. This was Rabbi Hillel's interpretation. And so the Pharisees actually approached Jesus asking if Rabbi Hillel got it right. As they, like so many others in the crowd, appreciated this simple, quick divorce. They, as humanity is so prone to do, twisted God's word in order to justify their desires, their lusts, their passions, while remaining righteous in the sight of the people and thinking themselves to be obedient, pious Jews. See, they wanted to justify themselves in divorcing and remarrying a new woman whenever the previous wife's charm wore off. Or whenever they, really, they simply just wanted a change of scenery. And these Pharisees, knowing that Jesus had a very strict uh, view of, on the sanctity of marriage, asked Jesus to give his position on the issue, hoping that the pro-Hillel elements of the crowd might simply say, this is just too much for us, and leave off following him. See, the Pharisees didn't like the crowds that are following Jesus, and they hoped to dispel those crowds. 
But one of the things we know about Jesus is he is no coward. One of the things we know about Jesus is he will not lie to the crowds. He will not speak soft words that they all want to hear. Why? Because he is, as he says in John 14, 6, the truth. And it is the truth that sets people free. And for that reason, as Jesus always does, he answers the question truthfully, saying to them, Have you not read? And here lies the basis for every single one of our answers to these and all other questions, right? The Word of God. Have you not read? You Pharisees who think you're so smart, who present yourselves to the people as the spiritual authorities, as the teachers in Israel, have you not read and therefore know that the, what the very first words of God are on this subject? Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Now, even the Pharisees who got so many things wrong would not have been offended by this statement. Nor would it have caused offense to pretty much any human being from the dawn of time until quite recently. That God, when He created humanity, made them male and female. Two and only two sexes. Two, and only two, biological complementary opposites that correspond to each other, and that is it. The statement here is even more emphatic than we see it in English because it, means, it actually means that he who created them made them the male and the female. Meaning the Lord made male and female, each with certain physical properties and parts that define them as male or female. God made the male with certain parts that only a male possesses, and he made the female with certain parts that only a female possesses. And when he made them, he commanded them to be fruitful and multiply and ensured the continuity of this design of males being those born with male parts and females being those born with female parts so that they could obey the command of God to multiply and fill the earth. Our world, however, is not at this moment content to praise and honor the Creator for His most excellent design. Our world is not a fan of the clear distinctions that God makes and the orderly way that God has set down creation. We know, according to Scripture, that our God is a God of order. He creates and He establishes spheres and distinctions and order in creation. You go right back to creation and you'll see that it is good when God separates things into their ordered spheres. Light from dark, day from night, earth from sea, water from land, holy from the common, the clean from the unclean, Israel from the other nations. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. This is his most excellent design. But as humanity has always tried to do, we seek to blur the lines. We seek to throw mud in the clear waters of God's order. We hope to bring disorder and chaos to what, that which the Lord has ordered. And for this reason, the modern concept of gender has been conjured up by our society. Now, for many of us, we might use that term interchangeably, right? We might use it interchangeably with biological sex. However, the coining of this term is a modern classification. It's a way the world uses to corrupt and to confuse the simple fact that Jesus said here that God created us male and female. 
See, sinners are always bent on suppressing every trace of God's authority in creation and over creation. And so humanity, in its unrighteousness, has crafted this category of confusion, a category the world describes as how one feels about themselves, how one sees themselves, how one experiences themselves, or how one perceives themselves. So you see, sex in our culture is biological, Gender is a perception about how we feel about ourselves. This is how the culture has split these two things. So an example would be, if a man with man parts, a man born with man parts, sees himself or feels that he is a woman, this self-defined feeling of gender trumps his biology. And while he may have all the external markings of a male, he is, according to our culture, indeed a female. According to the Lord who created each and every one of us, however, we are either born male or born female, and there is a very simple way to tell the difference. Our reproductive organs. If you are born with male parts, you are a male. If you are born with female parts, you are a female, and that is how God designed it right from the beginning. God is the author of the male and female sexes, and he only authored the male and female sexes. It's the word of Jesus right here. Look at it again. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. He goes on and says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, or for this reason, or because God created them, male and female, because God made the man and the woman as corresponding complements for one another, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the word for leave here means let go of his father and mother. It even has the sense of abandon, abandon father and mother. So you see, as important as the familial relationships we have with our mothers and fathers are... When a man and woman enter into a marriage relationship, it is this new relationship, a relationship that binds the two together in a one flesh union that takes precedence and takes priority over every other one of your earthly relationships. And both the man and the wife must be diligent to protect and to value and to cling to each other over and above all others. Note the command. The man is to hold fast to his wife. So you see, right? The Pharisees are like, can we just divorce for any reason? And Jesus said, no, it's, you're supposed to hold fast to your wife. We aren't just to simply put certificates of divorce in our wives' hands whenever we feel like it. The design of God from the beginning is that man cleaves to, man sticks to, man is glued to his wife in an inseparable way. And these two, the man and the woman in marriage, shall become one flesh, said Jesus. The idea being that just as a one body can't be divided or torn apart and still be considered a whole body, so it is with marriage. When a man and a woman enter into a marriage, everything changes for these two. It is no longer you and me, me and you. It is now us. 
A marriage unites two people into a singular, one singular unit. And in all ways, that man and that woman, that husband and wife, now function together as a unit, bodily, financially, spiritually. In all ways, it is us. Now take a look at the text again. And I want you to note how Jesus defines the marriage relationship. You see, in our culture, there are some who think it's a real mic drop moment, right? To say, well, Jesus didn't address homosexual marriage or homosexuality, so that must mean Jesus didn't see it as a big deal. And then they do this and think that that was a real mic drop moment. First off, if we accept the premise that he never touched on the subject, which, by the way, I don't agree with, the argument is flawed because no one in their right mind would ever believe that Jesus permits everything that he never specifically addressed. As one satirical news outlet once quipped, this would mean that felony home invasion must not be that big of a deal because Jesus never addressed it. But the premise isn't true. Because Jesus here speaking about the who of the marriage union clearly and effectively eliminates everything but the man and the woman as an option. Any attempt to redefine or expand the definition given by Jesus here is nothing more than a sinful perversion and corruption of God's original design for marriage. And notice in verse 5, Jesus actually refers to two marriages. That of the father and the mother and that of the man who leaves his father and mother to hold fast to his wife. The marriage bond from the very beginning, as reiterated by Jesus, can only be entered into by a biological man born with man parts and a biological woman born with woman parts. And verse 6, once that union is um, brought together by the Lord, what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Again, notice that it is man and the wife that God joins together. And only the man and his wife. God alone sets the parameters of this, his divine institution. And try as they might, no earthly power, even though in the heights of their arrogance and in the height of their pride they might try, can ever legitimately redefine an institution that is created by and that belongs to God himself. No earthly government cannot redefine what the church is. No government can define what the gospel is or redefine what the gospel is. Not legitimately, anyway. Nor can they redefine marriage. Jesus continues... What God has joined together, let man not separate. That phrase there is actually an imperative, meaning it's a command. What God has joined together, man must not separate. See, this is the Lord's original design and plan for marriage. So Jesus' answer to the question of whether it is permissible to divorce for whatever reason can be summed up this thusly. Divorce was not a part of the pre-fall design for marriage. The original intention of God for marriage is that it is a bond that must never be broken, a bond that must never be divided and never be pulled apart. Now, 
Our Lord has just described and explained to these Pharisees the good and excellent and wonderful plan and design of God for marriage. And one would hope that these Pharisees, being brought back to the, uh, the first words of God on the subject, might say, look at Jesus and say, oh, okay, you're right. You know what? We are now going to obey God's command. We're going to relish in His design and we're going to operate according to His will and His plan. It's going to be difficult. It always is when two sinners come together. But you know what? The Lord's will is good. The Lord's ways are best. We're going to do it. But that's not what they do. These same Pharisees, accustomed as they are to finding loopholes, accustomed as they are to searching out ways to justify their disobedience to God's word so that they might continue doing whatever they wanted without any guilt or shame, instead of focusing on how to follow God's original design and intention for marriage, continued to hone in on the reasons for divorce and why it might be permissible. You see that? They don't look to the good plan. They say, yeah, 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 okay, that's all good, but how do we get out of it? So in verse 7, they ask him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? Now, do you see how they describe Moses here? They describe Moses as though he were pro-divorce, as though he commanded. That's the word they use, right? Why did Moses command men who didn't like their wives to give them a certificate of divorce? This is a subtle yet monumental shift in the meaning of Deuteronomy 24. And it allowed the Pharisees to be puffed up with pride and self-congratulations. Whenever they overlooked some fault or minor annoyance with their wives, they could look at their wives and say, do you see how benevolent a husband I am? Moses told me to put a certificate of divorce in your hand because you burned my dinner today. He told me to send you away for such things. But I choose to overlook your indecency. And all the people might stand around and look at the Pharisees and say, wow, those Pharisees. Do you see how they go above and beyond in their marriages? How kind and how considerate and how generous they are with their wives. That's how they might self-define it. But Jesus looks at them and says, it was because of the hardness of your hearts. See it in verse 8? Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus makes it clear. Moses didn't command anyone to put a certificate of divorce in their wives' hands. Instead, because of their hard-heartedness, because of their rebellious spirit, because of their obstinate commitment to their own wants and their own desires, over-obedience to the command and the will of God, Moses allowed you, or as he says, or as it says in the King James, Moses suffered you to put away your wives. See, Moses didn't promote divorce. In fact, the text of Deuteronomy as a whole didn't promote divorce, but instead served as a warning to Israelite men who would put a certificate of divorce in their wives' hand to pause and to consider the decision. Because unlike the abominable practices of the nations around Israel who would divorce their wives in order to take themselves another wife for a time and then get rid of that wife to go back to the first wife, who they really cared about most in the first place... You could not do that in Israel. You could not commit what could be phrased a legal adultery. Any man in Israel who would divorce his wife must think about it first because you will not be able to take her back later. 
Moses permitted this. He suffered this from a time, for a time because of the hardness of the hearts of the Israelites. But, Jesus said, this, from the beginning, this was not so. This was not God's intention. This was not God's design for marriage, the original blueprint for marriage. It is now time, Jesus said to the Pharisees, to return to the original will, word, and design of God. And in reference to marriage, instead of trying to promote easy divorce, which is quite prevalent in our own day, Jesus quite strictly declared, I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus actually points to the man and says, when you marry a woman that is not your wife, you're an adulterer. Something the men of those days had never heard. Now, Jesus here closed any loopholes to them who think they could divorce their wives and take another to themselves. And pointed the finger and said, when you do so, you commit the very sin that you're thinking that you're avoiding. So stay with the wise of your youth. Throw away your file folder filled with certificates of divorce. Stop with the self-justification. Plainly put, you divorce your wife, you marry another, you are an adulterer, and the woman you dismiss and make makes whoever she marries an adulterer. So now just simply quit all the show, quit all the pretense, and obey God's word. Eliminate it all from the equation, and let's get back to what God's design for marriage is. Now, this issue of marriage and divorce Jesus brings up in this question is a touchy one, as has been all the issues we've touched upon so far. And there are numerous well-respected and godly men who interpret this phrase, except for sexual immorality, differently. You see that, right, in 19.9? I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And generally speaking, there are two interpretive camps that, that fall from this particular phrase. And they can be summed up by these two statements. The first camp are those who believe that divorce and remarriage are permissible when a partner is adulterous or deserts a spouse willingly and without repentance. That is camp one. Camp two declares that while divorce might be permitted for certain very specific reasons, all remarriage while the partner lives constitutes adultery. Those are the two camps in, um, among faithful believers. Now, the dominant position for the church for the first thousand years of, the church, of our existence was that remarriage, all remarriage, while the partner still lives, constitutes adultery. Every early church father except for one, the highly respected Ambrosiaster, interpreted the words of Paul and Jesus in this light. Now, remember, these are the fathers who learned from the apostles themselves and then passed down their teachings to subsequent generations. It wasn't until the rise of the human-centered culture in the 16th century when the famous and influential Erasmus of Rotterdam sought to loosen the church's tight restrictions on marriage and divorce. So the early church did not practice remarriage, but alongside of the early church, the Romans and the Jews continued their practice of divorce and remarriage. The Puritans, who are my theological heroes, when they put together the Westminster of Confession of Faith, ascribed to the first position, writing this, 
In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. This is the view held by uh, such luminaries as Dr. John MacArthur, for example. On the other hand, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is, in my opinion, the greatest of the modern faith confessions, it is basically the Westminster Confession of Faith for people with more congregational and baptistic tendencies. This confession removed the marriage the remarriage clause, in disagreement. A position held by um, luminaries such as Dr. John Piper that falls into the second camp. So what does the scripture tell us about this subject? Well, you open, flip back, flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul will summarize the teaching of Christ on this subject in his first letter to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10, he says this, to the married, I give this charge, and then in brackets, not I, but the Lord. So this is a statement that's brought about a lot of confusion. As Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. So what does it mean for Paul on one subject to say, not I, but the Lord, and on another subject say, I, not the Lord? Simple. In seven, chapter 7, verse 10, Paul is pointing the Corinthian readers to the direct and specific words of Christ on the subject of marriage and divorce. Jesus spoke with absolute clarity on this question, but in chapter 7, verse 12, Paul is addressing a situation, the situation of an existing marriage of two pagans where one gets saved but the other does not get saved. This is an issue that Jesus didn't directly address head on. And so Paul makes this note to the Corinthian church. I'm setting this down for you. You can go looking in the words of Jesus, but he'll never have addressed this subject head on. But when it comes to, um, to the married, he says, I, the, I, go to the words of Jesus. This, and here's his summary. So what is the charge that Paul gives to the church at Corinth? What is the charge that Paul assumes that the Christ has spoken with absolute clarity on? Look at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 7. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. This is the Apostle Paul's summary of Christ's teaching on the subject of divorce and remarriage. Husbands and wives ought to do all in their power to avoid separation and or divorce, but if a separation occurs, two and only two options are given, according to Paul. One, remain unmarried. Two, be reconciled. So you see, while Paul does acknowledge that a divorce might occur, he does not present remarriage to another person as an option for the divorced person. Reconciliation with one's original partner or the single life are the only two options he acknowledges. Just look at 1 Corinthians 7. Our Lord taught that the marriage bond is not dissolved because you or both parties opt to end it. In the end, neither spouse actually has the right to leave your spouse. When you got married, you gave up that right when you offered authority over your body to your spouse. You do not have the right, nor does any human authority have the right to dissolve what God has brought together. This is a view of human marriage, or that, a view of marriage that ought to lead married couples to fight for their marriages, to labor for better marriages. If we are married, and if you hope to marry, this truth ought to elevate the gravity and the seriousness with which you enter into a marriage. 
It ought to elevate this unbreakable one flesh union that you enter in upon when you get married. And so in order to do this for the Corinthian church, Paul points them to the words of Jesus. Look at Luke 16, 18. Jesus said this, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. You see it? That's clear. Everyone. Everyone who divorces and marries another commits adultery. These are the words of Jesus. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 10, verses 9 to 12, Jesus said, What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So you see, when you look at the, the wider teaching of Scripture, the importance that Jesus placed on this one flesh union. The husband and wife are no longer two, but one. And when the disciples asked for clarity on this, because they understood exactly what Jesus was saying, Jesus said, again, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And the disciples said, well, then it's better not to marry at all. See, when you get a divorce and get married again, according to Jesus here, the new marriage didn't change the reality. If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And that's a one-time thing, not a repeated thing. And why is that? Because the husband and wife are one flesh. Just because they decided to part ways does not change the spiritual truth about their one flesh union. Now, many of us are probably sitting here wondering, okay, so then what about this phrase, except for marital unfaithfulness in Matthew 19.9, where Jesus said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, many have understood this to be what we call an exception clause for remarriage. But to see this as an exception clause for remarriage would contradict Paul's summary of Christ's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, wouldn't it? It would also contradict the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Mark, wouldn't it? So therefore, we must understand the clause as providing an allowable reason for divorce, marital unfaithfulness, but not permission to remarry. This is one of the ways in which a divorce can be legally or, or pursued without the person pursuing it being held liable or guilty of sin. And so the disciples understood this. And they said, if the connection is this serious between a husband and a wife, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Meaning, marriage is that serious. Marriage is so binding that the disciples question whether it was worth it to enter into the relationship. Well, let me say it is. Marriage is good. Marriage is a wonderful gift of our Lord God. And as difficult as it is for two fallen people to try living together, growing together, doing life together, it is a good gift of God. And the disciples understood, however, that Jesus was declaring the lifelong nature of a marriage. And this is exactly what Paul said. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies not leaves, dies. She is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. And while the death of her husband gives her leave to remarry, according to Paul, contrary to what many of us might think, 
Paul said, it's probably better if you remain single. See it in verse seven, chapter 7, verse 40. In my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. Paul's counsel to remain single, he's saying, it's not some torture to be inflicted upon you to be single. Singleness is a great thing. In fact, in your singleness, it is an opportunity for a more God-focused, God-glorifying life. And we know, according to Scripture, that a God-focused, God-glorifying life is a life of joy. And Paul will also use, in Romans 7, if you look at Romans 7, verses 1 to 3, he'll refer to or use this concept of a lifelong marriage, the nature of marriage being lifelong as a way to illustrate a theological truth. That the death of Christ dissolves dominion of and our captivity to the law of sin and death. Look at what he writes in Romans chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. The clear teaching of Christ and Paul in regards to marriage is that it is a binding, lifelong, one-flesh union. And those who divorce, in the words of the Lord through Malachi, do violence to themselves, Malachi 2.16. And so all of you who are married here and now, you are called upon to guard yourselves against such violence. If divorce does, however, occur, Scripture declares that you remain single or you be reconciled to your spouse. And as I said before, the disciples understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And as men of their time, they were shocked by this. This is so strict. If such is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Meaning, if marriage is something that i got to work at, even when I don't feel happy or when the romance fizzles, or when the spark is gone, if you're telling me i got to hold fast to my wife when she's nagging me or quarrelsome, or if I know she no longer finds favor in my eyes, or I don't feel the same way about her anymore, if you're saying that I have to keep clinging to her and that I can't divorce her, then it's better not to marry at all. And You should take that seriously. If you're single and you're thinking about marriage, take that seriously. If you can't do this, it's better not to marry. As one commentator put it, a sound marriage is based on permanent, unconditional commitment to one's spouse. Permanent, unconditional commitment to one's spouse. For those of you, again, who aren't married, let the disciples' words here be instructive for you. Understand that a marriage is a permanent union. And if you are married here, recognize that your marriage is a permanent union. You are one flesh with the person you are married to. And you must recognize that your marriage is a God-ordained union that you must not separate. And then in 1911 and 12, Jesus speaks about eunuchs. And the idea here being, in response to to the disciples' question, he says, there are times when marriage is not expedient for some people. For some, it is best to abstain from marriage. Disciples, if you think it's that difficult to enter into a marriage, if you think it's, <laughs> you're not going to be able to do it, then focus on gospel labors because singleness brings great advantage to gospel work. So, in closing, 
That's quite a lot to digest here, isn't there? And why is it so important that we get this right? Why is it so important that we understand and profess and proclaim the truth of God regarding this divine institution of His we call marriage? He called marriage. It's because, as the Apostle Paul made it clear in his letter to the Ephesians, for all of us who are married, your marriage is a wonderful and clear metaphor of God's love for and relationship with His people. Marriage symbolizes for everyone to see the fidelity of God, the faithfulness of God, the steadfastness of God, the love of God. And so all perversions and corruptions and redefinitions and and separations all tear at the fabric of this reality, of this most wonderful symbol that God has given to the world. Our marriages are illustrations to the world that for all who enter into a relationship with Him by grace through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, for all who turn from their sin and to belief and trust in Jesus, for all who become, truly become children of God in this way, that the Lord never leaves you or forsakes you. The Lord will come back to take you to be with Him where He is for eternity. This is what marriage presents to the world. This is why we fight so hard for great marriages. This is why what God has joined together, let man not separate. May your marriage be the most unbelievably amazing gospel witness to this world that we live in. And if you're single and not married, let your singleness be the most amazing gospel witness to the world in which we live. That's the primary point of our lives. In marriage, out of marriage. Love Jesus, obey his word, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything he has commanded. So let us never be those who mar or corrupt this most wonderful truth. Let us be those who hear and obey the word of Christ to his great glory and to his great honor, and for our great joy. Father, we thank you for your word. And we know there are certain texts in scripture that you've given to us that are powder kegs in the culture. And every generation seems to have a different powder keg to deal with. And right now in ours, it is surrounding human sexuality. And we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the refuge that is your word. We thank you that you gave it to us in scripture, in writing, so that we can always appeal back to it, always look at it, always study it, always run to it in every single generation. Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who are unwavering in our conviction to obedience unwavering in our conviction and proclamation of the commands of Christ, the truth of Christ. May we be those who go into the world and bring the truth of Christ, hoping and to set people free. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.